We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. We're in for a few really cold days in Canada. Thank goodness we have lots of cleaner Canadian liquid natural gas to keep us warm. It's unfortunate the Prime Minister does not see a business case for sharing it with the rest of the freezing world. Here's Scott Thompson. So political for a Friday. Uh, good afternoon. It is 308. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It's Hamilton today. The gang's all here. Uh, the government has withdrawn a controversial amendment to its firearm legislation. Uh, you might remember a few months ago, um, there was a big deal about handgun bans and such. And even several police chiefs said, you know, we should really be focusing on the border. That's where 80 to 90 percent of uh, the guns used in crimes come from. Uh, but instead, it was more uh, about uh uh, more gun uh, control and such. And then at, at the last minute, it seemed that there was a whole pile of stuff added to it that really uh, nobody knew about it was kind of slipped in the back door. That has come back to haunt the liberals, and they've since uh, reversed this and put it on pause to uh, at least they figure it all out. Tony Bernardo was with us, executive director of the Canadian Sports Shooting Association in here now. Tony, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am Paul Scott. I hope you are too. So far, so good. So update us here, Tony. What, um, because this bill was brought in, and then I understand there was some stuff kind of thrown in at the very last minute, which nobody really uh, uh, knew about or debated, and then now uh, a change of tone. What are your thoughts? What's happened here? Well, I think that the, the backlash that the uh, liberals wreaked uh, has uh, landed square on them, and they've decided to bail out while the bailing's good. Uh, what what they've done? There are were four separate gun control measures moving through the political system, and they've stood down two of them because the two that that they had specifically dealt with huge numbers of hunting firearms. Now, this got the greater community, uh, some two and a half million gun owners in Canada. Uh, pretty upset because it was anything that was being used in hunting that was semi-automatic and center fire. Well, that's about 75% of all of the shotguns that are used to hunt waterfowl and upland game. That's probably close to 25 or 30% of all the rifles that are used to hunt deer and moose and bear and all the other uh, game that's in Canada. And uh, a net loss to to Canadians was in, into the many many millions of dollars. Uh, did they not realize this before trying to put it through? Were there not these concerns? Yeah, well, I, I I really don't believe they did. Um, every gun control effort they have made since they took power has been so badly aimed. They haven't really landed on the mark at any point in time. Hence, the, the rebound from the police chiefs across Canada saying, whoa, 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 this is not about lawfully owned firearms. This is about the ones being smuggled in by drug gangs into the big metropolitan centers in Canada being used to fuel criminal shootings. Um, they're not go- paying attention. So what happens now with this legislation? Is this on pause? Is it going to be reformed in some way? They're going to go take a second look at it? What happens now, Tony? Well, at this particular moment, the two things they have withdrawn are dead. Okay, they can come back at any point in time and put more in. I think that they might be perhaps a little gun-shy to do that. That's kind of a humorous analogy there, Scott. (laughs) <laughs> so are you surprised at this tony are you surprised at this uh about face i i think i i am to a small degree i mean the backlash was just enormous and, and i know that liberal mps all over the country have been facing a constant parade in the constituencies uh of, of firearms owners who are very offended by this you know, it, it's one of these things where our community 
has safety above everything. We scrupulously obey the laws. We scrupulously store, transport, and use our firearms in accordance with the law. We are safe. We have empirically proven we are safe. Our association ensures every single one of our members every year for $5 million of primary liability insurance. We pay less than $10 a year for that. Hmm. Um, why do you think, and we've certainly heard from the chiefs of police and such, and, and the, the, you know, 80 to 90% of the guns used, especially handguns used in crimes are coming from across the border. Are we spending enough at, uh, you know, trying to solve the border issue as opposed to these sort of issues, which, you know, end up failing and, and really don't do the job should, are we spending enough at, at securing the border and, and, and really nipping the problem in the bud there? No, not even close. Not even close. There have been several announcements the Trudeau government has made over the last eight years saying that we're increasing funding to CBSA uh, by X number of millions of dollars to deal with this issue. And at the same time as they're doing that, they're taking the money back out of the back end of their budget. So in, in other words, it's just smoke and mirrors. But, I mean, things like, for example, container examinations, Um, you know, all the shipping containers coming into the country, they have scanners that can look inside those those shipping containers. We don't have any of them. The the CBSA testified to the House Standing Committee that less than one millionth of one percent of train cargo is checked. You heard that right. One millionth of one percent. That was a testimony under oath to the standing committee. All right. Tony Bernardo with us, executive director, Canadian Sports Shooting Association. The government has withdrawn a controversial amendment to its proposed firearm legislation uh, that critics warn could have restricted access to hunting rifles. They backtracked on that. Uh, Tony, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. Metacago will be shutting down its COVID-19 vaccine project in Quebec after its sole shareholder decided uh, to no longer invest in the company. Uh, this was announced uh, yesterday. You might remember there was a big to-do about this when in the early stages of the pandemic, everybody realized we don't really produce COVID vaccine uh, or have access to it. We were like four to six months behind uh, other industrialized countries in getting uh, vaccine to our people. And this was uh, a Quebec plan, I believe, it was um, 90,000 square meters that was going to uh, be Canada's uh, first foray into this plant-based type of uh, vaccine, and now no longer. Let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, and with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Doing well, thanks, uh, Scott. So what happened to this firm? Because I remember the Prime Minister uh, you know, touting that we were getting into the business, and now it's gone. What happened? You know, um, this is, I think that this, this announcement today captures the problems with the economic policies of this government. It's a microcosm of their economic policies. And I don't want anyone to think I'm being a partisan. You know, they can be complimented for their social policies and we're dramatically reducing poverty in this country, which they have. Let's give them credit there. But on their economic policies, I can step back and now I'm going to answer your question. There is this belief in this government that they are somehow like King Canute. They're not subject to the laws of gravity, the laws of the world, mm. that we we can operate outside. And, and it's the same conceit as China. China said, no, we don't want those terrible Western, you know, Pfizer and Moderna, big American companies. We want a made in China vaccine. Mm. And they got one, by the way, and it was a complete failure. And we did the something similar. We didn't want, that was the excuse we gave that we couldn't get them quick enough. You know, well, we're a country of uh, 38 million people. Uh, the, the largest pharmaceutical companies, the most successful that have thousands and thousands of people with PhDs in biochemistry, they spend billions and billions in R&D and they're located in the US, France, Switzerland, Germany, mostly. And they're incredibly successful. And they've been doing this forever. And they're enormously gigantic. So we said, no, 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 little old Canada is going to do that. We're going to stop this little plant down in Quebec City with 100 people. And we're going to do what our giant, that the giant international pharmaceutical companies can't do. It was 
smoke and mirrors. It was snake oil from hmm. the get go. So then they brought in Mitsubishi, okay, which is a very large company. Let's give uh, acknowledge that Mitsubishi Chemical. But the word should get tip you off. They are not called Mitsubishi Pharmaceutical. They're hmm. called Mitsubishi Chemical. And unless you think that there's no difference between making complex chemicals and complex pharmaceuticals that you put in your body, cancer drugs, you know, things like that, vaccines, arthritis drugs, stuff like that, unless you think there's no difference, that should have been a tip off right away. What on earth is a Japanese chemical company doing going into the pharmaceutical industry, taking on some of the giants in the world with 100 billion of revenues? Well, we know the answer. Everybody knows the answer. They got a whacking large amount of money from the government of Canada, which is all going to vanish, by the way. The $200 million that was put in because we didn't accept the fact of the of the pharmaceutical markets. We didn't accept the fact that these giant pharmaceutical companies that have been doing this forever and have core competencies in this. No, no, no. We're going to go on our own way, just like the Chinese, and do it ourselves. And it inevitably ended in a failure. I just want to read the quote, okay? This is from Mitsubishi, multi-billion dollar Japanese company. In light of the significant changes to the COVID vaccine landscape, and after a comprehensive review of global the current global demand and market environment for COVID vaccines, and the challenges to transition of the, our company, Metacago, to commercial scale production, the company has determined it will not proceed. In other words, the market was not supporting what they were doing. And this was as predictable, and you could see this from the moment of the at the very beginning. They're not, and I don't put down Mitsubishi. It's a great chemical company, okay? <laughs> but they're not a pharmaceutical company. And was this a it was this an mRNA vaccine? It wasn't, was it? It was different technology it was plant based. Plant -based. It was actually, yeah. And so we said, in fact, our minister, Mr. Champagne, said, "Oh, this is innovative. It's got plant based." Now, yeah. no disrespect to Mr. Champagne. He's a smart guy, okay? I think I'm a reasonably intelligent guy, too. I don't have a clue how you make vaccines. I just know it's incredibly complex. I have read interviews with the person who has been doing at Pittsburgh, University of uh, Pittsburgh, who is probably going to win a Nobel Prize uh, for mRNA research. He's been doing it since the 1980s, and it's widely considered he is the leading expert in the world. And every time he describes it, I get a or re, I read about it, I get a headache trying to understand him. It's so complex. Hmm. Uh, okay, so I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying pharmaceutical research is unbelievably complex. And then you've got these politicians. Okay, who are not pharmaceutical experts. They're not people with PhDs in biochemistry who've been working in labs for the last 30 or 40 years on mRNA, pretending that they know more than the people who have been working in the labs for 30 or 40 years. In other words, we should never have done this decision. We should have made sure we negotiated a very favorable contract Contract from the get-go. I mean, before the vaccines even existed, because we knew they were coming. We knew they were coming because the companies had announced it. So instead of saying, we know better than the world. We know better than the waves coming in. We're not going to do King Canute and order the waves to roll back. We're going to go with the market, but we're going to try and get ahead to get the front end of the market by doing contract deals with the leading companies in the industry, instead of saying we're going to do an end run around the industry like the Chinese government did and failed and like we just did and we failed. So does this cost Canadian taxpayers? How much money does government put into this or did they? They put in $200 million. And okay, you can say, you know, the government's Canada spends $400 billion, which is true. What's $200 million? But the point is it was guaranteed to fail. It was guaranteed. You know, the role of government, I keep saying this, I've been teaching this for 35 years. The role of government is extremely important. The role of government is to act as the referee of the football game or the hockey game. The role of government is not to own one of the football teams and tell Patrick Mahomes when to throw the bloody football. <laughs> they do not know. Referees do not know. They're not coaches. 
They're not general managers. They don't own football teams. Their job is to referee the rules of the game. Where this government is going off the rails over and over is saying, we know more than the private sector. We know more than these companies that are experts flying airlines or developing pharmaceutical vaccines or drugs. We know way more than they do because we're much smarter. And they don't. There's nothing wrong with regulating, but they're going beyond that and saying we are going to change the strategic decisions because we don't like your strategic decisions because we're smarter. We know more about your business, even though we don't work in your business at all. They're not running an airline in the government of Canada. They're not running a pharmaceutical company and so on and so on. And so this is where my, my criticism has been. It's not partisan. It's just they're they're way overstepping their bounds. There is an important role for government, but they're messing it up. And, you know, and we're going to do it again on, on going head to head with Biden. We're saying we're going to go mano a mano with Biden. We're going to match them, even though they're 10 times bigger than us. Dr. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, Matacago, shutting down uh, in Quebec after it was supposed to be a shining light getting us into the vaccine business. Uh, that's no longer the case. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Yeah, same to you. Thanks, Scott. All right. want to bring in Aro Brown, a professor of international relations, senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. And initially, and going to, you know, try to fit in uh, Ukraine and NATO and Russia in that conversation. But obviously want to ask uh, him his take on uh, this mysterious Chinese balloon, which has uh, come across Canadian airspace and is uh, headed down into the U.S. Aro Brown is with us now. Aro, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. So what are your thoughts on this uh, Chinese balloon? Initially, they thought it might be a weather balloon. Uh, now we're seeing uh, the Pentagon holding news conference saying it's a surveillance balloon. What are, you, what are your thoughts? It seems to have been a very clumsy attempt by China to gather intelligence, very provocative. It tells us about uh, dictatorships being really careless in their diplomacy. Uh, Tony Blinken, the American Secretary of State, was scheduled to go to China. That has been canceled right now, so they have a major diplomatic issue on their hands. So um, they just thought that nobody would care if they floated this thing by? China has prodded and probed their neighbors, and now they went a bit further. We have not uh, really given a lot of publicity to just how aggressive China has been in the the South China Sea, how they created artificial islands, for example, to try to claim sovereignty. So this is not an entirely radical departure from their generally very assertive foreign policy. It had not been tried this directly against North America, and perhaps they thought they could uh, get away with it somehow unobserved, doesn't make much sense, or that the United States would not make much of a uh, fuss the level of intelligence that they gather from this operation is not likely to be very much higher than what they would get from satellite reconnaissance. <clears throat> so it is hard to understand why they would keep pushing the envelope, but this is not the only place where they have uh, have done that. And perhaps they want to gauge the determination of the Biden administration, which has been strong on rhetoric and much less forceful in terms of policy. Do Americans know exactly what it's all about, what's in it, what it's capable of? Initially, it was thought to be a weather balloon. Now it's surveillance. Again, you said this wouldn't do much more than what a satellite would do, or if anything more. Um, What sort of surveillance would they be using this for? One of the areas where apparently it has been going over is Montana, which has very large American nuclear installations. And so they may have tried to get more precise information about American uh, nuclear uh, capability. But again, uh, is uh, the cost worth the possible gain? The Americans have monitored this very closely. This balloon may have gone over Canada as well. And uh, a decision has been made that on the balance of costs and benefits, the Americans would not shoot it down. They certainly could shoot this down quite easily. It's a sm- uh, slow-moving object, but uh, would uh, spread uh, debris over a significant area, and, and it could endanger people on the ground. So this is why, so far, it has not been shot down. 
I, I was going to ask you to elaborate on that, Earl, because, again, um, some said, well, if it was a military concern or even surveillance, that they would have taken it down. Uh, it is over places like Montana, which could easily be taken it down without, you know, interfering with a populated area. Um, why wouldn't they have shot it down? What would have happened if they had or if they do? There are a number of reasons. I, I, I think the official reason that... Uh, American, uh, you know, members of the government have talked about, and that is that it would cause some risk to people on the ground, even if it is over a lightly populated area. This mm-hmm. is flying high up, and the debris could spread over hundreds of square miles, and so uh, some people could be affected. The other element might be that uh, uh, the Americans might be gathering intelligence themselves from the operation of this balloon, and mm. they want to see how far it goes. And it's conceivable that once it flies out of uh, uh, American territory and it's uh, over the Pacific, let's say, they may the Americans may shoot it down. So this could not necessarily or may not necessarily be the uh, end of it. But I don't think this is that much of a technical issue or that much of a tactical matter as it is uh, this general idea of China behaving in a more rogue fashion, testing, prodding, and uh, probing uh, to see what the political uh, and strategic implications are. And the Americans did take a major step by canceling what was to be an important visit by the U.S. Secretary of State. And I think that is important. That sends a message. And so hopefully this will resonate with the Xi Jinping uh, regime that even a very reticent American administration, uh, which now is beginning to take more and more steps, they have enhanced cooperation with the Philippines. They will have more deployment of American forces in the Philippines. The Philippines feel very threatened by China, the South China Sea area that this administration is becoming more assertive and that will also send a message regarding any plans that China may have vis-a-vis Taiwan. Hara Brown with us, Professor of International Relations and Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto, and we didn't even get to Ukraine, Arl. Uh, next time we will for sure. Thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Let's bring in Carby Levy, technology analyst and journalist. We're going to talk to him about B, uh, Bill C-11 and what that all means, but we'll uh, we'll see if he's got a pea shooter and chasing balloons like the rest of us are. Carby <laughs> Levy, technology analyst with us now. Carmi, I uh, hope you're doing well. Well, I am, although I'm guessing better than the senior defense officials in the U.S. who are about to have their uh, their heads called on the carpet over this. How do you allow um, you know a, a balloon to fly smack into the middle of your airspace and kind of hover there for days without anybody knowing? This is uh, unbelievable, honestly. Like I've I've studied the defense industry alongside technology for much of my career. I've never seen anything like this before. Uh, and it seems like you said, I mean, uh, we we're hearing that, uh, that, uh, you know, air, airliners flying out of Calgary and, and Thunder Bay and Regina were told to watch out for this because it's come across Saskatchewan and then into, uh, Montana and such. Uh, initially saying that it's a weather balloon that, that it has gone astray. The U.S. Uh, Pentagon saying, no, it's a surveillance balloon. What kind of technology could be in this? We've had one expert say, you know, you're not going to get any more from this that you wouldn't get from a, say, satellite. What are your thoughts? Oh, this thing could be loaded for bear with technology. Our understanding of Chinese uh, balloons that are used for reconnaissance, they're the size of two buses. Uh, Mm. They are packed with sensors and electronics and communications equipment, so they can soak up. They have cameras on them. They have all sorts of sensors to measure uh, emissions in the atmosphere, atmospheric conditions, radio signals, um, and they can hover over a particular area. Obviously, you can't control where they go because they're balloons, but when they're over a particular geography, they can see and hear and sense pretty much anything that's going on in the visual as well as electromagnetic spectrum. So you want to talk about a perfect spy, spy platform? This is it. 
uh, and uh, and you know we, we these are exactly the same kind of sensors that are 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 on spy planes that were on the SR seventy one back when it flew the Blackbird uh, that are on KC one thirty five based uh, planes that the U S Air Force flies around the world. Um, and so we we don't know exactly because we haven't gotten our hands on this thing and they're afraid to shoot it down. They don't want it to hit anyone on the ground. Uh, but I think we can rest assured that if this is from China, as it seems to be, that it is packed with all sorts of technology and it is essentially hoovering up everything that it can see and hear about us. So is there any way for us technologically to look into this and see exactly what it may have on board? Or does it have to come down and we discover it and go through it in order to see that? Can we, is there any sort of devices we can use to, to trace what is, what is on board perhaps? Oh, oh, sure. I mean, you use, you know, the, the spy trade is full of aircraft that have sensors on them that can literally paint uh, a device like a weather balloon and measure its emissions and try to determine what kind of equipment it has on it. What is it listening for? What information is it sending out? Try to intercept that traffic uh, and learn something from it. So I am absolutely certain that U.S. defense and spy assets uh, have been used to electronically interrogate this balloon, the payload that's hanging underneath it to really understand it and bear out if, in fact, uh, it is a Chinese research uh, vehicle, as the Chinese government claims, or if it, in fact, is being used for spying. Of course, the only way that you're really going to know is if you get your hands on it. And the only way to do that is to shoot it down and then collect the, the uh, you know, whatever debris is left on the ground. But up until now, they've been hesitant to do that. They don't want the debris hitting populated areas. It'll be interesting to see how far it gets out over an ocean before something happens to it. Uh, all oh, right. It's, well, only, keep... it's only it's only a matter of time, I'm sure of it. Once it gets into a sparsely populated area, I have a funny feeling fighter jets will be sent up to <laughs> interrogate a little bit more closely and uh, bring it down. All right. Uh, we'll keep our eye on this story. Bill C-11, uh, the Senate has passed the Online Streaming Act uh, with a dozen amendments uh, and such. Uh, uh, big tech companies that offer online streaming services could soon be required to contribute to Canadian content. What does this mean for those that are using? Um, I mean, for you and me, you're pr it means you're probably going to see and hear more Canadian content on YouTube, Netflix, and Spotify, and others, that you'll see more promotion of it when you're in Canada, when you're on a Canadian network. Uh, it means that these platforms are going to have to promote Canadian content in much the same way that traditional broadcasters started having to do that in the 70s and 80s, uh, to ensure that Canada's cultural industries don't get swamped by those in the U.S., which are, of course, much larger to us, and they're right next door to us and exert a huge influence on us. The problem with this particular bill, uh, known as Bill C-11, was that it had included some provisions on user-generated content. And the fear at the time, as it was working its way through the government, was that, uh, you know, that you know, nobody wanted the government to essentially say, you know, if Carmi's posting a video onto YouTube, does the government have a say in it? Uh, you know, that should have been exempt. And so the Senate's changes among them, among their recommendations to change it before it finally passes into law, um, is to further protect user-generated content and actually put words into place to ensure that the stuff that you and I and all of our listeners share online won't be subject to this legislation. So uh, the Liberal government is basically saying, okay, thanks, Senate. We're going to read it. We might accept some of the provisions, not others. We'll see. But it looks like fears that the government's going to be standing over our shoulders to play with our videos on YouTube, not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, good idea, or uh, is this outdated? Only got about 30 seconds left. Uh, I think we, we need some kind of legislation in place because, let's face it, these streaming platforms have, have had a free ride for years, basically collecting revenue from Canada without contributing back into our industry or our economy. Mm. That's about to change, and I think that's a really good thing for all of us. Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist, talking about uh, everything Bill C-11 and floating Chinese balloons in the atmosphere. Carmi, have a great weekend. Uh, be safe. Be well. <laughs> Thanks so much, Scott. You too. Jugmeet Singh, leader of the federal NDP, and with us now, Jugmeet Singh, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. Last time we chatted, you were about to become a father. How's fatherhood uh, going for you? What's that experience been like? Oh, it's been amazing. Uh, kids are a joy always, and having my own, having a daughter has been just an awesome journey. I spend lots of time with her, just being amazed with the smallest things helps me re- Re, uh, re-experience and appreciate just the small things in life, like sunlight falls in her face and she starts giggling. 
And mm. it is pretty amazing when we have sun, a sunny day. So the small things that kids appreciate since you appreciate those things in your life. Also just Good. reminds me of the type of world I want to build for Good point too. Takes you make, makes you certainly think of things a bit differently, doesn't it? All right, um, let's. You're in town here, obviously, to talk about various things, but including healthcare. Healthcare been a massive yeah. issue post pandemic. Uh, Premier is trying to meet with the prime minister. That's coming up in February seventh. The prime minister wants, uh, in order for more money, reforms and accountability and such. And you've been very vocal against the the privatization of some of the public delivery and such. What's your plan? What do you think we need to do in order to fix this is this just a case of the same system but just adding more to it more money more doctors more nurses well one of the one of the major points of the crisis right now or the major reasons we're in this crisis from the healthcare workers themselves they're telling us and the experts are saying there's just not enough healthcare workers we've got a massive shortage in in hamilton the hamilton health sciences hospital they have a critical shortage of critical nurses of 700 that's 700 vacant spots and not total. The total number is like 1,400. That's 1,400 vacancies. But 700 of those are critical. So imagine trying to serve the needs of a community when you are 700 people short of what is needed for the community. Naturally, it's just not going to be enough to provide the, the quality of care uh, necessary. So uh, healthcare workers themselves are saying, we go into work, we feel like we're feeling morally injured because we're not able to deliver the care that we know we're supposed to and trained to, but we cannot do it because we don't have enough resources. So the fundamental solution has to come down to getting more nurses, doctors, and healthcare workers hired. So that's one thing. The second piece is the for-profit solution proposed by Doug Ford and Daniel Smith in Ontario and Alberta is not going to fix the problem because if the shortage of healthcare workers is the problem, putting more money into a for-profit privatized system is just going to steal and handpick workers out of the public system into the private. It's not going to add in new workers and it'll only mean longer delays on the public side. It is the wrong thing to do, and that's why all the major nurses and doctors associations have come out against it. Um, uh, well, um, uh, Ontario Hospital Association, Canadian Medical Association are supporting uh, a lot of these reforms, uh, cautiously supporting a lot of these reforms. Um, so basically for you, it, it's not a template issue. It's not the system is broken. It's it just needs more funding and more doctors and nurses uh, funneled into it because it seems what we've realized post-pandemic is the system system needs more than just more money, more doctors and nurses, more health. I mean, there's shortages of everything everywhere. We all know that. That's that's nothing that we don't know. And and you bring up uh, Alberta or Ontario about too much privatization, yet we're hearing this virtually right the way across the country, from east to west in every province, including British Columbia, which has an NDP uh, government and an NDP premier. Um, they're all dabbling in this. So, again, you seem to center at Alberta and Ontario a lot, where it seems that a lot of provinces right the way across the country are looking for these solutions, whether it's a pan-Canadian licensing system, whether it's bringing in healthcare workers from uh, whatever province, and they can go from one to the other or such, or even these reforms with private delivery of public health care. Aren't we seeing it right the way across the country? Well, and, and it's important to look at the, the direction that other provinces are going. So what BC is actually doing is they've acknowledged that previous governments have absolutely opened the door to more pro- private for-profit care and that it, that it exists in the province. But they found that that costs more, it is uh, less efficient, and it means in many cases less quality because when you're working for-profit, you cut corners to make more money. So what BC is actually doing is they're buying up private clinics and bringing them back into the public sector. They purchased for-profit clinics and saying, we actually can do a much better job if those were public because the idea of providing care in a facility that's not a hospital for certain needs is not the problem. The problem is when that facility is operating for-profit. There are many institutions that deliver healthcare that are private, but they're not for profit or charity. Many hospitals raise money because they have charitable status. So the issue isn't necessarily just that it's private. It's when it's for-profit. The for-profit model was the problem identified by the military when they went into the long-term care homes in Ontario and Quebec. The for-profit homes were on an evidence basis where the worst quality of care was found, where those really horrible stories of, of seniors left in their soil diapers and soil linens for hours, crying out for food and water because the care was reduced 
to make that profit. There was less hours of workers, less numbers of workers. So our concern is BC is actually going the opposite direction of Ontario. They're buying up the private for-profit clinic saying we can actually deliver more care if it was public because we wouldn't have to factor in a profit margin and our public dollars wouldn't be going to the to the profits of for-profit corporations. It would actually go to more care. And that's the problem. If the problem is a shortage of workers, that's not going to be solved by going into a for-profit delivery and putting more money into the for-profit side. The problem uh, with the comparison is we've got a system that's been starved for decades of funding and it's been starved. And then people are saying, oh, we need creative solutions. Well, it's not a fair comparison. If you starve a system of decades of underfunding, then clearly it's not going to be able to compete with a hungry, profit-hungry corporation that wants to come in and, and find a way to make profit off of this struggle. We need to properly fund it. It seems that this is an extreme dis- extreme discussion. Either it's it's way over on one side with public or it's way over on the other uh, with private. Is it really a battle between private versus public? Haven't we seen uh, uh, healthcare systems that really benefit by having a combination of both of these systems? And, and that's where Canada is perhaps lacking is in the sense that they haven't been open enough to, to different ideas, new ideas. Uh, is it really fair to paint the private versus public? Is it is the solution not a combination of both? Not at all. And, and to be clear, it's the for-profit that's the problem. Again, back to the private argument. Private, if it's a not-for-profit, not privately operated organization, that's not a problem because its motive is not-for-profit. There's many not-for-profit child care providers, not-for-profit long-term care, provi- care providers that do a great job. It's the profit motive. And wherever we see a for-profit model in healthcare, we see it across the world. In the United States, a great example. For-profit means higher cost because you have to factor in profit. So it costs more for the delivery of care. For-profit means lower quality. They cut corners to make that profit. And for-profit steals from the public system. So it is a bad approach and it's bad on the evidence. And it's not fair to compare the existing problems in, in Canada and point to a public-private debate it's a public system that's been underfunded. Like, if you look at the federal proportion, it used to be 50-50. That federal yeah. proportion has dropped to 22%. So imagine you're trying to run any service and the amount of funding you receive over decades has cut in half. Naturally, it's going to be difficult to deliver the same quality of care that people remember. It's because it's literally been cut in half. Half the budget's been cut. Imagine we've got to feed the same family or a growing family with half the budget. And then someone says, oh, okay, well, maybe your, your delivery of your family food, you know, they're cooking at home is not working anymore. We've got to bring in some outside providers. Well, it's like, well, your budget's been cut in more than half. It's now down to 22%. Naturally, that's going to create a shortage. I, I completely understand what you're saying, Jagmeet, and I, and I think that's the, the complaint of many of the provinces, and I've certainly said that when you drop funding so much, of, of course, this is going to happen. That being said, if the government would say to reinstate 50% funding uh, to this, uh, do you think the answer is just putting that money into that old system, or does there have to be some sort of change to that template? Is this just because the system uh, has been starved of money, in your words? I think that once we properly fund it, then there are definitely things that we can do better. And one of those that's come up a lot, so I agree that there are some changes to the old system. One of those changes, which has come up again and again, is team-based care. And that's the idea of having a number of people working together, doctors working together with nurses, dietitians, social workers, physiotherapists, working in a team setting. It's been used in things like community health centers or team-based care approach. Those are shown to be a better delivery of care because sometimes you don't need to see a doctor. A nurse can provide you the care that you need. Sometimes your issue is not really directly related to a medical, uh, a physician medical issue, but it's really about poor diet that's creating a medical outcome. Like you're not, you're not having uh, great health because of the food that you're eating. And so sitting down with a dietitian would probably be a better way of dealing with a chronic illness that you have rather than meeting with a physician in that particular case. So having that team-based approach is something that, uh, BC is exploring. It actually was explored in Ontario at one point, and they've been very effective. Community health centers were quite effective. I actually worked at one when I was in uh, university in the summertime, and it was providing excellent care when I was growing up in Windsor. So those are some models that, that have shown to work and can work better. Instead of having uh, walk-in clinics, one idea is to have publicly funded clinics where 
someone's got an illness that's not serious enough to go to an emergency room, but you can't see your family doctor quick enough. So having a clinic that can provide care in those cases, maybe a fever, maybe uh, you know, you're having other struggles that don't, don't require an emergency care, but you don't have to rush into an ambulance, but you definitely want to get it looked at. Having another place to go could be a solution. Hmm. Jagmeet Singh with us, leader of the federal NDP in Hamilton today, and of course joining us uh, on the show. Jagmeet, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the questions and the opportunity. Thank you. It is 900 CHML in Hamilton. We're coming back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We talked earlier on this week. Uh, Ontario's Green Party leader, Mike Schreiner, is being wooed by the Ontario Liberals to come run for them. Good move or act of desperation? Let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data, with us now. Tim, hope you are doing well and not freezing. <laughs> well, I'm uh, standing in a in a tennis facility watching my son play tennis, and I'm moving around to stay warm, Scott. So moving my lips there- and moving my feet as I talk to you. <laughs> Keep working, keep working. Uh, so your thoughts on all of this, is this a good move or is this an act of desperation? Uh, it looks desperate and it's probably not what the Ontario Liberal Party needs right now. Now, look, some of the people who signed that letter are serious people. Uh, Deb Matthews, John Malloy, I think Greg Cerbera, if I remember, was on that list as well. Um, they're, they're, not, uh, they're not inexperienced or naive, but boy, oh boy, oh boy. Um, it looks like they're trying uh, the week that Tom Brady is retired to throw a Brady-like Hail Mary pass and hope for some victory. But, uh, yeah, if from every you know liberal that I've talked to there who aren't signatures to the letter, they, they see it as desperation. Uh, is this a sign that the liberals are going even farther to the left? Because many are saying that they've done that already, that they got to come back to the center, both provincially and federally. Is this a sign that they're going the other way, further to the left? I don't know if it's that. It could be. I, I think it's a sign of how desperate they feel at the moment. Look, I was involved with the uh, the PC party in, 19, in the 1993 after that election when they went down to two seats and went through the whole conservative reunification movement. And a lot of weird stuff happened at that time as people tried to put things back together. And I think that's kind of like this. So, interestingly, the Ontario Liberals, the McGinty wind period, you know, had, had a long period of time in the wilderness. And if they keep, you know, trying to renew quickly, they may not renew properly. Uh, is it really about finding a new leader or should they find a new vision first, then select the leader? Yeah, that's it. I mean, I, I think they're like, who are you? What do you represent? And who do you speak for or to? Uh, you know, credit to the NDP uh, with Andrea Horvath your new mayor there in Hamilton. I, I, I think she was able to carve out a space uh, for, for the NDP, not ever able to win, but she found constituencies. I think the liberals, yeah, they're, they're, they haven't told people really what they're for. They've told people what they're against. Uh, and there's already a party that's in that space. And there's already a party in the governing space that does some of the things that they once hoped they would do in terms of, you know, running the economy and, trying to fix health care. Uh, we remember when uh, the Wynn government was defeated, a lot went to help out uh, the federal liberals. Um, are the federal liberals learning anything from what's happening on the provincial level? Are they watching this? Except uh, who's Justin Trudeau's arguably biggest ally in, in Ontario now, right? Uh, Doug Ford. Uh, Doug mm. Ford and Trudeau are working well together. But I, I think the federal liberals, Party is a more broad-based party, but yeah, I think you can learn anything from watching different parties and the challenges that they have. And I think again, quick fixes. The federal liberals tried quick fixes. Remember, look, they you know they uh, they elected Stefan Dion. Look, that was a disaster. They brought in Michael Ignatieff from the outside, so maybe they should be uh, the Ontario Liberals should remember that. And that was a disaster, the worst electoral showing the federal Liberals ever had. So. You know, it's almost like the Ontario Liberals are mimicking the post-Paul Martin Liberals of uh, of Ottawa. So is this good for who, bad for who? Uh, probably, 
well, good for Mike Schreiner's ego <laughs> that he's so yeah. well thought after. Uh, probably good for the NDP. Probably good for the PCs and not so good for the, the liberals unless they use this as a moment to say, hey, we're going about this the wrong way. We need to think hard on what we're doing. But it doesn't seem that they seem to be engaged more in infighting than solution making at the moment. Tim Powers with us, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director Abacus Data, Ontario's Green Party leader Mike Schreider being wooed by the Ontario Liberals. Tim, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Stay warm, Scott. Talk to you soon. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. So what BC is actually doing is they're buying up private clinics and bringing them back into the public sector. They purchased for-profit clinics and saying, we actually can do a much better job if those were public because the idea of providing care in a facility that's not a hospital for certain needs is not the problem. The problem is when that facility is operating for profit. That is NDP leader Jugmeet Singh in town today uh, on the show just moments ago talking health care. Let's bring in Dr. Sean Watley, practicing physician, author of When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadians Medicare, uh, Canadian Medicare is Failing, and a senior fellow at the McDonnell-Laurier Institute. Sean, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, sir. Thank you. I understand you heard the interview with uh, Jugmeet Singh. Your thoughts? Um, it seems um, that, that rather than reform or changing the template, um, the NDP leader wants that funding restored back to 50% uh, and then hiring more health care workers, which I, I guess, you know, everybody needs hiring more of everything, I guess. Um, and then funneling that money back into the system is the solution here. What are your thoughts? Well, my, my first thought was that, holy smokes, this guy's a good uh, a good host. So you asked some great questions. You said, come on, Mr. Singh, is this, I think you said Jagmeet, it, does it have to be black and white? It seems yeah. pretty extreme here. So I thought that hit the nail right on the head. That's exactly the issue because he's way on the one side. And to your point, yeah, okay, let's increase money, increase, increase number of doctors, increase number of nurses, increase... That absolutely, that sounds wonderful. Everybody's going to sign on. The problem is, how do we pay for that? So, really quickly, he mentioned teams. Well, we know that team care, family health teams, he mentioned in Ontario, they cost 60% more per patient rostered than traditional yeah. family practice. He talked about uh, community clinics. Well, the nurse practitioner clinics up in Sudbury costs three to four times more per patient rostered. He talked about moving care out of hospitals and how terrible that what that is. Well, the Auditor General report in 2012 reported that 20 to 40% savings are seen for the exactly the same services, you know, MRI in the hospital versus MRI out of the hospital. I could go on and on, Scott, but uh, you, you get you get the sense of what I think of what he said. Uh, so uh, another thing that I found interesting was that, that it seems that all the provinces are experimenting with reform and, and some sort of reform um, uh, in regard to private delivery of public health care, and including British Columbia. And he said, when I posed that to Jugmeet Singh, he said that, in fact, they're buying all the private clinics back. <laughs> yeah, so I'd like to see the list of clinics they're buying back. But the, the key issue, it pivots on this word private. What the heck do you mean by private? And I think we've yeah. had this conversation before. Um, if we call the post office a public institution, a government owns, operates, hires, fires, you know, everything about it is public. The other extreme would be your daughter's lemonade stand. She determines everything that happens in that lemonade stand. Healthcare in Canada, in Ontario in particular, is somewhere in the middle, heavily regulated environment. So what do you mean by private? Does private mean you get to rent your facility or do you get to choose the price of your service or what service you're going to provide or how much of that service? Right now in Ontario, all we're talking about is moving services out of hospitals into facilities that actually already exist. We have over 800 independent health facilities in, in Ontario providing CTs, MRIs, minor surgeries, and that sort of thing. So please, uh, Mr. Singh, define what you mean by private, because no one's talking about pulling money out of their pocket. No one's talking about redefining services. I mean, that's when you really start getting into a robust discussion about private delivery. Uh, I did question him on, is it not a combination of both? Um, uh, and he said no. He was flat out no. 
Yeah, I was so shocked. I thought, okay, here we're going back to the Tommy Douglas days. I mean, as people know, Canada used to own CNR, Air Canada, Bell Telephone, Hydro yeah. One, BC Rail, on and on. I mean, Petro Canada. <laughs> We don't need the government to do crown corporations anymore. And for him to say that anything that's not done by the government is greedy, terrible, low quality, I, I, I mean, I think most people could see through that. Uh, is it fear-mongering then? Um, because, again, it seems to be drawing a line in the sand like Canadians, you cannot let this happen. This We're at a turning point here, and you cannot let this happen. I mean, that's the urgency I'm hearing here. Well, the problem with fear-mongering is eventually people start to see through it. I mean, even Prime Minister Trudeau came out and said, yeah, hey, you know what, the stuff that's going that, that Ford's proposing in Ontario actually sounds pretty reasonable. Let's increase the number of publicly funded services closer to people's home, homes. So uh, Mr. Singh has to be careful that he doesn't get too far out on a limb here and people are just saying, wait a second, you're the only guy saying this. You're starting to just sound like you're talking to your base. What are you talking about? Um, that's what one of my next questions was. Do you think this is a smaller and smaller group of people? Because at one time, again, when, when Ford made this decision a, a week or so ago, I thought, I thought everything was going to hit the fan. And, and a day later, I'm thinking, why didn't we do this before? It seems the only ones that are against this are either those that are, you know, believe the government should be doing every, anything more to the social left, um, or those that are profiting from the system the way it is. Well, it is disruptive. And so we have this corporatist style iron triangle between doctors, government and unions. And all three parties have to benefit out of any change that happens. Yeah. And so when a change is dropped on the table where services are being moved out of the hospital, now some doctors are going to be, op be operating all the time or doing, you know, uh, reading x-ray scans a whole bunch more than they can right now with the limited services available in our current system. Well, that will create a wedge between doctors. Now those procedurally based doctors are going to earn a bunch more income. The unions will be upset because now we have people working outside of the unionized environment. The hospitals Bingo. will be upset. Yeah. So very disruptive. Uh, are we at a turning point here, Sean, with healthcare? Many, you know, we talked about over the course of the uh, pandemic that, you know, there needs to be changed, things need to change. And then afterwards, uh, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. Uh, and then all of a sudden we are where we are. Is, do you feel a turning point here? I'm very hopeful. So they talk about disruptive innovation when you when the current system just gets so big and expensive and clunky, like the old mainframe computers, and then along come personal computers, and they give you all the services that you need and more. And so that's what we're seeing right now. We're seeing a bit of a shift. We couldn't get activity-based funding in hospitals. Now, essentially, we're going to get it out of hospitals. So I'm very hopeful. However, everything's a risk, right? The regulators will be very quick to come up with a whole new new regulatory net to constrain those services that are done outside of hospitals. So we need to focus on the endpoint: more care for patients. Uh, but more money into the old system, not going to happen, not going to work, even if we go back to 50%. Your thoughts real quick. I don't think so. And, and we only ever had 50% for a few years in the early 1970s. After that, it's been a battle over who gets to pay the tip on the, on the total bill mm. and choose the menu at the same time. That's what the feds are trying to do. Dr. Sean Watley with us, practicing physician, author of When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing, senior fellow with the McDonald Laurie Institute. Another fascinating discussion, Sean. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, sir. All right. We've been talking, uh, it was kind of funny. It started hitting the news today uh, all over the U.S. Uh, networks, and they're following this giant balloon. And the Chinese initially said it was a weather balloon, but uh, the Pentagon saying it's a sur it's a surveillance balloon. And uh, I guess it came across over the Arctic. It came. It was in Canadian airspace for the last few days. However, Canada said nothing about it. Canadians knew nothing about it until. It crossed the border and went into the United States, 
And now, of course, it's like on the news every hour or so as they're bringing us an update on what is going on. I uh, just listened to a fabulous uh, interview with CTV News where they were just pinning the safety minister, uh, Mendicino, on why Canadians weren't notified this when it, about this when it was over Canadian airspace and why they didn't take it down or, or what have you. And, and, of course, the minister didn't really have a, a good answer. Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, and with us now. Elliot, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you. Same to you, Scott. This is bizarre, Elliot. What, what comes to mind when you hear this story? Well, it's kind of quaint. <laughs> of <laughs> nothing, there's nothing like a good old-fashioned spy story with a hot air balloon. Yeah, it goes back to the Civil War. Uh, yeah. It's quaint, but of course, it's a very serious issue. Uh, Secretary of State Blinken was on his way almost. He was about to board a plane to go to Beijing. First visit by a Secretary of State to China for six years or so. It was a follow-up to the November Bali meeting between Xi Jinping and, and President Biden, who said, let's lower the temperature. Let's find a way to communicate better. <laughs> now we know uh, it's going to be very hard to communicate better if you send a spy plane over American sovereignty. And this is a point emphasized by Secretary Blinken, violating American sovereignty on the eve of his departure. Uh, why do this? Uh, you know, we were talking to one guest and they said, you know, the information like this you can get from satellites and such. Um, what's the advantage to doing this? Is this just, uh, again, more bullying from China or uh, is this a mistake? Did they, was this supposed to happen? The, the speculation is all we have. Uh, right now, the speculation is that, uh, no, the Chinese have done something extraordinary for the first time in memory, they've actually apologized, saying hmm. uh, this was a, a weather balloon. It got blown off course. It has very little self-corrective capacity. Uh, so this is force majeure. It's out of our control. And we're sorry about that. And that's about all they've said so far. But the uh, speculation then runs rampant. Was there an intention to have this actually seen? Was it intentional? You know, it's a big balloon, and it's not uh, invisible uh, to radar, although that's one of the advantages of balloons. It doesn't have a lot of metal on it, but it's uh, certainly, we knew about it in Canada, as we, you've just mentioned. Uh, it's certainly known in the U.S. that it was there. So oh, the speculation runs from, um, you know, they were sending us a message that they're going to do this no matter what, to what my personal speculation might be, and speculation only is that, it really was a snafu that the um, the communications within the Chinese system have been so poor that an aggressive action, which normally would have been just fine, was not just fine at this particular juncture. And there may be an internal uh, uh, heads rolling in, in that regard. But we don't actually know. All we do know is that China has embarked in very, very truculent behavior for a long time. Wolf warrior, wolf warrior diplomacy, we've suffered from it. We've had the two Michaels uh, put in jail on, for uh, reasons only of the Chinese state wanting to do that. And now we have this. Another possibility also occurs to me along these same lines, Scott, that remember we just had something extraordinary happen in China. Xi Jinping's uh, big ticket item, we are going to keep the country safe from COVID, blew up in his face. Uh, so the mm. lockdowns, which were working so well in his opinion, led to actual, for the first time, for the very first time, calling into doubt the, the wisdom of following the Communist Party of China. So the, mm. the legitimacy of the party was called in. Then he flipped entirely the other direction and yeah. opened up the country. So maybe they are just, um, they're just a little rocky on the uh, diplomacy front right now in China. <laughs> Why didn't Canadians find out about this a few days ago? It was over Canadian soil, apparently, before it was over American soil. Uh, as soon as it crossed into Montana, it was on every newscast in the United States. Uh, the safety minister was being questioned about this. Why didn't we hear about it when it was over Canadian airspace, not until it uh, got over American airspace that it hit the media? We can speculate on that only, and I think the primary reason is Canada did spot it very quickly and immediately took action by contacting the U.S. on the private mm. channels. I suspect there's been constant communication uh, between Canada and the U.S. over the flight of this and where it's going and what it is. And uh, I suspect the U.S. cautioned, don't, uh, don't release this at this point. 
And what about shooting it down? Is it better to let it go, see where it goes, or will it uh, float until it gets out over the sea and then it comes down? Yes. Uh, one of the comments coming from a colleague of mine, various two colleagues, said one of the implications of all this is we have to upgrade NORAD. If we want to shoot it down, you have to have a better system for detection and doing something about it. What uh, Anthony Blinken has said is that we are waiting for this balloon to leave American airspace. Will it then shoot it down over the sea? Uh, we, we don't know that at this point, but uh, the, the seriousness of this should not, it, again, it's quite quaint and you think, oh my goodness, an air balloon. Uh, it is a very serious, um, not an inflection point, but a statement as to the degree of tension between China and the US and China behaving in a way that is making everything worse. Uh, now, there's now reports coming out that there may be more than one and up to four. Have you <laughs> uh, any any feedback on that? Uh, just the same speculation you've seen, and it's only speculation. There was a, a second one in particular that was being tracked. Uh, now there's speculation that's even more. But uh, we don't have any facts on that. What we do have is reason to be very concerned that there might be. And the fact that the Chinese have raised that concern in everybody's mind is a is a, a major component of this whole story. Nobody's now going to trust China, uh, it, it, even to a greater degree that the distrust had been there before. So they have, uh, they have made a bad situation worse rather than better. And the two big powers do need to have conversations. There is dialogue necessary. There's a lot of issues that require communication. And this is not going to help the effort to open up lines of communication on strategic matters and non strategic matters between China and the U.S. Will there be more emphasis on Canada to do more to be aware of what's going on over the Arctic as things come over from that area of the world? Certainly internally there will be, whether there is publicly or whether the U.S. is going to lean on us to do more. That, of course, will be out of our sight. But uh, keep an eye as to what happens next. I think how all of this is handled in the next day or two is going to be very indicative. Will this be something that the U.S. is willing to say, okay, we've, we've seen what's going on, we're not happy about it, we've taken action, we know what you're doing, so um, now let's get to the point where we can actually talk, or are they going to make it uh, on the Chinese side or the American side into a much bigger issue than it already is? Will it be downplayed or will it be built up? And that's an indicator as to where relations will go between China and the U.S., in fact, China and the world. China and the world and now balloons. Uh, it's certainly never dull. Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. I'm sure we'll chat again on this, Elliot. Uh, be well. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Same to you. Scott Radley coming in after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your spectator. Uh, and he is here with us now. Good afternoon, Scott. Hope you're doing well. Is it a water balloon, Scott? <laughs> this is, we're going to find out. This is it is. There's going to be a, a torrential flood. That's right. It's all a joke. It's all part of the uh, Lunar New Year, something like that. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, uh, one of, those, one of those, those patio lantern things just floated away and got out of control, and that's all it really is. That's, that's right. At least it doesn't have a candle on the bottom. It could set fire to the, uh, you know, the, the terrain or anything. All right, enough of that. Um, I think you and I struck on a nerve. You did a column about this, uh, and we were talking when the Bulldogs announced that they were going to be uh, heading off to Brantford for three years, and we discussed about them changing the name, and I didn't understand why they would change the name if they're just going for three years, and then all of a sudden we realized they're not coming back. Uh, and I believe you wrote a column on that, and now it seems we've got City the officials kind of backtracking, saying, no, 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 no. Uh, we're going to get them back. Bah, 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 bah. Uh, your thoughts on the fallout from all of that? All right. So I'm not saying they're not coming back. I, I didn't say they're not coming back. What I no? said is uh, the city might want to begin treating Michael Andlauer a little like the city of Brantford has, as if yeah. the man matters. And this is not about stroking the guy's ego or something, but if you run a business in town and you're giving a million dollars to local charities, I think that's someone that we should want to have around here. I do. I think that's someone that we should be eager to keep in the fold as part of our community. This city has done, not this city, city leadership over the years has done an abysmal job at showing any real interest in this team. I bet you if you did a poll over the last 10 years 
of over that time, people who sat around city council, if you ask them, how many of you have been to one Bulldogs game? Hmm. I bet you might be able to count the number on one hand. Wow. And, uh, and, and you've got all this stuff going on. The arena gets let to go run down. Um, you know, for, I remember a couple of years ago on opening day, and anyone who's been down to First Ontario Centre knows what the place looks like. On opening night for the Bulldogs, a sort of a big thing, a big celebration. Three of the main escalators were outside. I know the escalators. The escalators are unbelievable, yeah. And this was not something that was unexpected because these had been yeah. broken for years yes. and not working. Uh, the, the city has allowed the arena to get run down. When he comes to City Hall to try and bring his own $30 million and pitch an idea at Lime Ridge, not only, it's okay not to like that idea. It's totally okay not to think that that's a good idea. But some of the councillors treated him with disdain and grilled him when he was talking as if he was some sort of criminal on the stand. It just goes on and on. And I look at this and I think, if I'm him and I go to Brantford, and they treat me really well. And if the people in Brantford come out and there's excitement and I don't have to deal with this crap, that's when I say, maybe he sticks around. I didn't say he's going, but I'm saying there is a chance that he doesn't come back. And if the city here, if the people here who run this city and the arena and everything else, if they have any concern about that, they might want to start showing a little bit of interest. One of the things, Scott, that I wrote in my in my piece about that, this is my all-time how to make sure you insult the local team. When Jim Balsillie was trying to get the Arizona Coyotes to come here and they were doing that Make It 7 campaign for seven Canadian teams, yeah. they had a rally on the roof at Jackson Square. And keep in mind, if the NHL had come here, that would have essentially all but squeezed Michael Andlauer and the Bulldogs out of town. That would have been the end of him here. Yeah. So, of course, someone from the city calls the Bulldogs and says, hey, can you guys have Bruiser come to our rally and help pump up the crowd? Like, <laughs> Wait a second. You're asking us to send our mascot to go to an event that would eliminate us. How dense are you? How tone deaf are you? So we'll see. We'll see what happens with Brantford. I mean, this whole thing begins and ends with Brantford people showing up and selling the place out. If that doesn't happen, yeah, yeah. it doesn't matter. One last thing, and I know we only have a second or two here. One last thing. Uh, one or two of the councillors before said, well, look, if Ann Lauer leaves, this was a couple of years ago, if Ann Lauer leaves, we'll just get an expansion team. We'll get another team. We'll get an AHL team. We'll get an OHL team. That's complete lack of understanding of the situation. Michael Ann Lauer owns the rights to OHL hockey in Hamilton. You can't just say we're bringing it. Yeah, yeah. He has. And then he is a highly respected. He's a governor. He's a part owner of the Canadians and he's looking to buy the senators. And apparently from every account, the other owners and governors around the NHL love the guy. He is a highly thought of governor. If someone else says, I want to move an AHL team here. And he goes, Hey, can you not do that? You think they're going to screw him over for an AHL team? Michael Andlauer essentially holds the future of hockey in his hand in this city. If he goes, if people, if the city fathers and mothers screw him off and say, we're not caring anymore, well, you may be saying, okay, fine. We're not going to have any hockey in this city then. That's that's what you're dealing with. It's time to at least treat the guy with a little more respect and maybe take the example of what the mayor of Brantford has done and look like you're at least interested a little bit. And what's the sense of doing a reno if you don't have a main tenant? Well, or so, so, okay, so that honey badgers like, are gone. Really? And if the bulldogs are gone, so you've got the Toronto Rock. Hey, look, we love the Toronto Rock. Lacrosse in town is fantastic, but that's nine days. That's yeah. nine dates you have in that arena. I don't think anyone's building a restaurant next to First Ontario Center to get yeah. the business from nine dates. You need more things in there. It's, Look, they're playing a dangerous game. Whether you love the Bulldogs, whether you like OHL hockey, it doesn't matter. They are playing a dangerous game by being so disaffected and so blasé about this whole thing. It, it is, well, it, it's something they got to look after. Nobody likes to build anything anymore. All right, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator coming up after the 6 o'clock news. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show and a great weekend. You too, Scott. Have a great one. 
Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This last word from Mr. Lowe. If a Canadian or American balloon passed over Chinese airspace, it would have been blasted out of the sky. All we seem to be doing is calling in the Chinese ambassador for a discussion. I wonder how NORAD would respond to a North Korean or Russian weather balloon. (laughs) 